Hello, everyone, and welcome to Artifacts. I'm your host, Marissa Dickens, and today's guest is a comic book lover, pop culture guru, and future owner of Monarch Comics, Ed Catchkey. Hello, folks. Guru. Boy, I feel like I've gotten, like, a, a promotion here. <laughs> I'm super excited today because I feel like you are an arts enthusiast. So let's get started. Are you okay, ready? Okay, I'm ready. So Shoot. Going way back, where did you grow up? Toledo. Toledo? Yeah, okay. born and bred. Yep. South End Toledo, as a matter of fact. Nice. When you were younger, did you were you exposed to the arts? Well, going back, I can remember being very young when I started reading. I mean, like, just regular books. Uh, we're talking at eight, I had already started reading, like, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And when I was very young, probably eight or nine or ten, a friend of my parents, one of their kids, had a stack of comic books. And, you know, I I would go over to their house with my parents and I'd like obsess over this, you know, tiny stack of comics and he ended up selling to me for like 10 bucks. And that's what really hooked me. I mean, this whole world opened up uh, of continued stories and characters. And of course, uh, the, the Marvel comics that were mostly in the stack, Marvel was always very much the kind of soap opera relationship type comics. And I'd already been uh, kind of groomed on soap operas from my mother watching the daytime soaps when I was young as well. So there's soap operas with superpowers and costumes. Oh my God. (laughs) So I became kind of obsessed with it. And in grade school, um, there was a group of other kids, of course, that were into comics as well. And we just kind of had our own little clique. Once I discovered the existence of comic stores, it was all over with. <laughs> so would you, in that stack, you saw a little bit of Marvel comics. What else was in there? It was mostly Marvel mostly comics, Marvel. as I remember. I mean, it, my goodness, it was, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, I remember that one of the comics, and I always cite this as the first comic I ever owned because mm-hmm. it was in the stack, was Fantastic Four number 100, which was just a mind blower at the time, written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby. It was towards the end of their original you know, golden run on Fantastic Four. And it had every single supervillain the Fantastic Four had ever fought in the first hundred issues. So, you know, you read this comic and you're just like, it's it's almost like it was almost like reading the first hundred issues of the Fantastic Four because it hit all those same moments mm-hmm. with, with all the bad guys and so on and so forth. So and again, you know, you had the guy's comics weren't the way, let's say, your dad's comics would be, where it would be one, two, three, four, the entire run. It was just all these random little issues. Back in the 70s, uh, Marvel was very big on doing a lot of reprint comics. So they were taking their comics that were popular in the 60s and then reprinting them in a, uh, a different format for the 70s. So there was a lot of these older 60s Marvel comics and random issues and, of course, wondering well, what happened in between those issues? I must know. <laughs> and, of course, eventually I've pretty much read them all. But at the time, it was something that just kept kept you going. And I do remember there was also a moment where suddenly it became less about the characters and more about the people that were producing the comics. It was my generation that started that whole idea of the rock star comic book artist. Mm. Uh, John Byrne, George Perez, Neil Adams, Walter Simonson. You know, suddenly their names were the important ones. Those are the ones that we were trying to track down and follow mm-hmm. and collect. And it just kind of ballooned for me. I mean... When I was 14, I was working part-time at a small comic shop in town that doesn't exist anymore, and I worked there on and off all through my high school years, and eventually I just ended up 
Steve offering me a job because I worked for one of his competitors. And Steve offered me the job, and in 91, I went ahead and took it. I can't tell you the moment where I realized it was going to be my life vocation, (laughs) but by the time I was 30, it seemed pretty obvious that I was playing the long game and that eventually all this would be mine. How old were you when when you started working here? I was 21 when I started working here. And I just turned 50 a couple of months ago. Wow. So describe your relationship with Steve, you know, first like working with him and now you're going to be the future owner of Monarch. That's an interesting question. I mean, Steve and I were just employer-employee for the longest time. But when you work with somebody for that long in such close quarters, it slowly turned into more of a partnership, especially in the last 15, 20 years. Because Steve, as he got older, became less interested in the comic book material and was less interested in following it. So it kind of fell on me to kind of keep track of all this comic book stuff. And we ended up kind of hitting a balance with the way we handled things. He would be the money guy. He's the guy who's paying the bills, keeping the doors open in that sense, while I was handling all the inventory and all the ordering and all the customer service. And that was pretty much the way it's been run for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I'm uniquely situated to be ready to take over the store, although in the last, with all this COVID craziness, it's been interesting trying to get all the components, the last-minute paperwork and, you know, bills changing names and leases changing Mm. names. It's been rather challenging trying to get all that together to get ready. It also feels like I've been waiting for this moment, tapping my foot for 25 years, and now that it's here, it feels like it's happening really, really fast. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. (laughs) But, of course, this last year working with Steve, and I'm sure – Understand, I know that everybody's had the same experience, but for me personally, this last year is nothing like what I was envisioning it. I mean, you know that we have the free comic book day promotion Mm -hmm. every May. Mm -hmm. So the way I was thinking was, okay, we start the year, we take the three months to plan for free comic book day, get free comic book day out of the way, get the 900 people you know, farm through the store, and then start concentrating on all the technical details of the the handover between Steve and I. And of course, it didn't work that way at all. (laughs) It just feels like every time I get one component taken care of, suddenly three more pop up, and it's like, oh my god, I've got to deal with that too. Mm -hmm. So... So talk about, you kind of touched on Free Comic Book Day. So for people who are listening who don't know what that is, can you describe that? Of course. Uh, Free Comic Book Day debuted, I think, in 2001. Uh, Don't quote me on that. I can never remember the actual date. But uh, Free Comic Book Day is a national marketing campaign that a California retailer whose name completely, Joe Fields, a California retailer by the name of Joe Fields came up with it, and he based it off of the Baskin-Robbins Free Scoop Day. You know, the idea you go into Baskin Robbins, you get the free scoop of ice cream, and it gets customers in the store trying your product. Well, he came up with the same idea, and he approached retailers and distributors and publishers, can you guys work with me on this? Can you publishers come up with books that you could sell to us for, you know, a pittance? Usually it runs between 15 and 30 cents a piece, and then hand them, hand them out to people. And Steve, as I recall, was not really that into the idea, but I saw it for what it could end up being. And so we kind of been 
investing heavily in it right from the beginning, and every year it gets a little bit bigger. So basically, we usually have a selection of 20 to 30 different titles. I usually supplement it with overstock or the stuff that's left over from the previous years for comic book days. Mm -hmm. Stick them out on a rack and invite people into the store. And, well, you've been here for I love one it. Day I used before. to get, like, my DuckTales, my Disney. Yeah. <laughs> my dad would get all of, like, five of everything. Or he'd get, you know, but every, Superman, a little bit of this. Every year it got a little bit bigger and, you know, got a little bit more media attention. And we spice it up with, we have a team of cosplayers that come out to do, dress up in the costumes and take pictures with mm -hmm. the kids. And, you know, we, I usually have food to give away, pizza and mm -hmm. cookies. And um, it's, just, it's just really nice to kind of have an event where we can invite the community into the store so that they can see what we have and what kind of product that we carry. And they can see that also it's not just like a like a kitty thing, that we have all sorts of different uh, content that's good for adults and kids. Do you think that, because you've been working in this like, industry for a long time, do you think comic books are becoming more mainstream compared to maybe... Compared to... When you first started reading them? Yes. Yes. Um, it's weird. Back in the 90s, there was a dip. Uh, and I, I like to say that we skipped a generation. There was a generation of kids that grew up in the 90s that weren't that into comic books. And then the pages of a book turning, once the 2000 hit, suddenly we had a brand new younger audience coming in. We had people that were my age that were now raising their children, or your dad's age, that were suddenly bringing their kids in, trying to share their love of the characters with them. And of course, I'd be lying if I didn't, if I didn't, admit that, you know, like the Spider-Man movie, uh, the original Spider-Man movie franchise or the original X-Men movie franchise, it also did a lot to really push these characters into the forefront of the national consciousness. Of course, everybody do Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. I mean, they were just the mainstays. They had the TV shows. Occasionally, they would have a movie come out. But once the X-Men and Spider-Man, and by extension, the rest of the Marvel movies, uh, started getting made... That's when people really started to pay more attention to it. And, you know, over the years, I keep getting questions like, well, then such and such a movie comes out, you know, does it really help business? And it's not yes and no. I mean, it's not a case of somebody going to see the newest Avengers movie and then running in here because they're chomping at the bit to read Avengers comics. Again, it's more keeping these characters and the idea that comic books are still being produced, letting people know that they're out there. And then they come in, and then they browse around, and, well, you know, the, the variety of art that we have on display is bound to catch somebody's eye. Something's going to be interesting to someone. The art, just of comic books, the artists, it's so amazing to see every comic book has its own style. I know sometimes, like, issues, I know with Wonder Woman, they have different covers, they release different types of covers. Oh, yeah, that's that's an issue. It's more of a collector's type thing mm -hmm. with, with this whole multiple cover mm -hmm. angle that's been going on. It's a way for companies to uh, boost up their numbers, okay. to make it look like they're actually have more selling more copies than they actually uh. are. What I think is more interesting about comic books and what really uh, I think has been drawing more and more people into it, is that unique juxtaposition of words and text. You don't have it in any other kind of um, art style out there. Uh, and it's not just 
a matter of like an illustrated book. You're not just reading the words and then looking at the picture, but those words in that picture are combining together to give you a completely unique experience that you can't get from a movie or a TV show or a novel. That's very interesting. And, Look at that. And it's funny, it's something I discovered when I noticed like 30 years ago, I couldn't understand why more people weren't interested in reading comics. And when I put them in front of older people, and by older people I mean people back in the 90s that were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, I discovered that because I grew up reading comic books, it was a seamless process for me. I open up a comic book and I automatically, my mind knows what order to read those panels and word balloons and absorb the images with the word balloons. But people that didn't grow up reading comics, they'd open it up and it was like a foreign language. You know, unless it was very, very basic, a very basic setup. To like, how, yeah, which way am I reading? There's a longer box here, but shorter box here. Exactly. And that's when I realized that you really have to hook people young mm. and get them, you know, when they're learning to read, when they're learning to experience art. They, they have to do it young so that they, they get that automatic translation working in their head. Who would you say is your favorite comic artist? <sighs> is that hard? <laughs> There's just so many. I mean, if we're going to go classic, uh, mm-hmm. my favorites include like Will Eisner, who uh, he's best known for a comic strip he did called The Spirit. But he also did, um, he was also one of the early people to actually produce graphic novels as opposed to individual monthly comics. But the way he told stories using the comic book form was revolutionary for the period. He's really the grandfather of modern comics because there would be no modern comics, this modern storytelling style, without him being the first one to create the inroads for it. Mm. And, of course, I love Jack Kirby, who created half the Marvel Universe. You know, he had this very bold, distinctive style that, as a child, it, like, it like grips you by the lapels mm-hmm. and pulls you in and shakes you. Mm-hmm. And I still kind of have that reaction to his work whenever I get to see it now. Uh, more modern, I mean, like John Byrne, George Perez, Neil Adams, uh, those folks. Of course, now they're it's hard to think about it, but they're in like in their 70s and 80s now. But they were the ones that really engaged me when I was a child, really getting first getting into the to the art. Nowadays, I don't know. <laughs> it's like I'm looking out at the store right now, and I and when I talk about comic books now, it's a little bit different. Because now I'm looking at it not so much as a fan, but I'm looking at it as a retailer it's, or a bookseller. It's like, yeah, I could tell you I like the new Department of Truth series from Image or the new crossover series from Image, both of which have started in the last couple of months. But when I think about it now, I think about it in terms of how do I sell this to someone? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I take this comic book that I enjoyed reading a couple of issues of and encapsulate it into a quick 20-second sales pitch to get somebody to try it. So there's a lot of that. And also, after reading comics for as long as I have, I find myself getting more and more ensconced in the, the, the trivialities of it. I mean, I can't help it. You have these DC and Marvel fictional universes, both of which have been around for 80-plus years, and you just get kind of absorbed into the minutia of it and trying to work it in your head so that all these stories have happened and they all make sense. And I feel sometimes like that kind of takes me, makes me more of an old-school comic book fan rather than 
people that are coming in and getting into the hobby now, which are less interested in knowing every single moment that Batman has, you know, fought and lived for the last 80 years, are more interested in uh, set storylines, mm, you know, okay. like miniseries or, or you know, six-part stories that they're reading right now. That's what they're interested in. They don't care what Batman did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So let's say, like, for me, I'm so overwhelmed with how many comics. How would you guide me into picking it's, one? I'll be honest with you. You're, you're a 20-something woman, and I have comics that I know sell to that demographic. That's what I would start out with. Mm. Uh, for instance, Wicked and Divine at Image. Um, the whole story is the, the gods and goddesses of antiquity are real. Uh, they're reborn every 90 years in the shape and form of teenage teenage kids. And they have two years before to live before they die. This is their story. So, you know, and then I can pick up the book and say, look at the art. The art is fantastic. Yep. And, oh, I just love this comic. It's like I couldn't put it down when I was reading it. That's, I, I just, after doing it for so long, I just know what's going to sell to whom. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody comes in and, a kid comes in. It's like, oh, I want to get him his first comic book, his parent says. Fine. What characters do you like? Okay. Mm-hmm. If he says Batman or Spider-Man or Superman or Justice League, there are comics that I already have in my head that I know will appeal to that age group or that sensibility, and that's where I just steer people. So you have, you have to know every comic in the store. <sighs> There's a time I could boast that I'd read them all, mm-hmm. and I have to be honest with you, I can't keep up with them all anymore. I have two modes of keeping up with comics. There's the stuff that I absolutely adore, and I've been reading for so long that I could never stop reading, like X-Men comics or Superman comics. And then there's the stuff that I'm not that into, but I know is popular, so I'll like go in and I'll audit issues. Like Every three issues, I'll read an issue, or every time a new issue comes in, I'll flip through it to make sure I'm not missing anything. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, it just comes down to experience and my inventory records, so I can look and say, okay, this kind of comic did like sold this much for me, so I can reasonably expect this much interest in it and assign a number to it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is just kind of like making up as I go along. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, I keep running into these situations where. Of course, with the internet, you know, customers know the stuff as soon as I do, usually before I know about it. And when you start getting into, like, licensed properties or or video game properties or that kind of thing, I don't know anything about it at all. So they come in and asking, and I try to keep up on what's selling, what's popular, but it's not always a game that I can win. So then it's just like, okay, now you need to educate me. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you want, and I will get it for yeah. you if I can. Um, so besides inventory, describe what else you do. Like, what is your role, I guess, right now? And uh, basically, anything, anything that needs to be ordered, anything that needs to be sold, that's me. I'm in charge of it. The way the comic industry works is every month we have a huge order form that we have to go through with all the publishers. And at the end of that month, we have to put in our initial orders. So I'll go through this 300-page catalog and log in all of our initial orders. Then, four weeks before an item is set to be released is called the FOC final order cutoff date. Mm -hmm. So then that's our last chance to either add or subtract onto what we put onto our initial orders. So if a title 
uh, I could see that a title's doing much better than what I was expecting it to, that's my cue to start adding on. Or if something flopped, that's my cue to like cut it back down again. And then once all those fi- that final order's put in, then we have our weekly comic book shipment. Every week, we it's like Christmas. We get in a shipment of the new comics. Mm-hmm. I sort through those. I have to deal with special orders, and we have a subscription service that we use where people mm-hmm. week by week tell me what they want, and I mm-hmm. pull it and hold it for them. I have like a little Facebook Live show that I do on Tuesdays, which shows everybody everything that's coming in. I do mm-hmm. a quick camera sweep of the rack. And then, of course, just in here selling the books, hand-selling them in a lot of cases. What is the most popular comic here? Right now... What's what's in? It constantly changes. Yeah. But Batman's doing very well right now. They ended a popular... About a year ago was the end of a long-running popular creative team on the book, and they brought on another team that's proven to be equally popular. So Batman's doing very well. X-Men, which had kind of fallen down, especially um, with some of the crappy Fox movies Mm. that came out. Marvel had a complete reboot of the X titles, which were about a year and a half into now. And those have been very popular. Hard to to keep my numbers where they need to be for it. Other than that, again, you, you tend to see more creators rather than characters that are people are more following like Donny Cates for instance is mm. primarily a Marvel Comics writer he write, he's writing Thor and the Venom title right now and there's a big uh, universe shaking crossover coming up that he's going to be writing and he's also just debuted his new book crossover for Image Comics which is mostly handling creator owned projects mm. so he's very big right now so I know if his name's on it it's probably going to sell so it's time to order those order that's interesting those. like creators a little more than stories right now it's like the, the person behind and there's I could go into I mean there's this whole kind of shadow industry I guess with comic books uh, where speculators uh, people that decide that such and such a book is going to be worth more than cover price or what have you. And they've created kind of almost a comic book black market Mm -hmm. where they buy up these books at cover price and then do their damnedest to sell it for way above cover price on like eBay platforms. And that's part of what I have to deal with as well, which is really irritating because, yes, your comic books, if you hold on to them long enough, they can certainly be worth something. But that's not why I want to sell comic books. I don't want to sell people something because they're going to be able to take a three ninety nine cover price and turn it into twenty dollars overnight. That's that's not what I'm in this industry for. It's mm-hmm. to sell books. I mean, at heart, I'm a bookseller, which is why I love the trade paperback and hardcover collections, because me more than anyone else knows that you reach a tipping point when you're collecting comics. If you're getting the monthly what I call the, the monthly pamphlets. Uh, they're fun, and, you know, you get your weekly dose, and, you know, I love it, but it comes to a point where you just don't have room for it anymore. I mean, the stuff takes an incredible amount of room. and People starts have boxes. To pl- exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. And I have boxes. <laughs> I have an entire garage full of crap. Well, maybe I shouldn't have called it crap. <laughs> I have a, a garage full of fine comic book entertainment, but I much prefer this at my age to just have it in a book. 
it's much easier for me to hand sell a completed story rather than, oh, here's part one of a six-part story. Part two will be out in 30 days. Come back. And you're just waiting for it, you know? You'd rather have it all And most people, condensed. again, if they didn't grow up with this idea of, of the, the comic book individual issues, it can be a little weird because mm-hmm. they don't want to have to remember to come back to the comic shop in 30 days. <laughs> They'd just give it all to me right now. Yeah, exactly. Which is why many years ago I, I made the decision to kind of pivot more towards a bookstore environment with the trade paperbacks and the collections because they're just easier to sell and they're easier to store and they're easier for people to uh, say, oh my God, I love this. I've got to lend it to my brother-in-law to read as opposed to having to hand somebody 12 individual comic books. You're shifting now, you know, avid comic book lover to now you're the business side of it and thinking about how I can sell this, but also you are a bookstore. I always considered you a comic book store, but it is a bookstore. Oh, definitely. It is. And I just, you know, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And we're lucky. I should, we're also lucky because our industry hasn't been hit the same way that the mainstream bookstore industry has Mm -hmm. with the advent of all this digital content. I mean, I'll be baldly honest with you. I love digital books Mm -hmm. because I've got a billion, billion books at home. I don't have any room for them anymore. (laughs) I want to read all these books, but I certainly don't want to buy them and then have them sitting around after I'm done with them. So me personally, I can't live without my Kindle program, my iPad. But, and I could see how that has affected places like Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. We're lucky because there is a collectible aspect to this business. And there's just something about comic books uh, that people want to hold them. They want them in their hands. They want to be able to, you know, read them. They... There are, of course, the hardcore comic fans that prefer that kind of chapter book experience every week coming in and getting your new comics. And that's, I think, what has insulated us uh, from the larger digital revolution that's affected like video stores or bookstores. Shifting from comic books, your other interests besides comic books, I know you like to bake. Oh, I am a amateur baker, yes. No, I've seen some of your stuff. It looks oh, it's really good. completely <laughs> amateur hour, believe me. With the baking thing, it, <laughs> I'm not even sure when that started. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've enjoyed cooking. My ex and my current roommate, he, when I was in my 20s, late 20s, he's the one that really started to teach me how to uh, cook basic mm-hmm. items. Uh, to be honest, my mother was one of those people that grew up in the 50s and 60s, she had seven meals that she cooked mm-hmm. and cycled through them week after week after week, and she cooked them badly. <laughs> um, <laughs> he really opened my eyes to you know how easy it is to prepare very simple meals and how to do things like make gravy or mashed potatoes or how do you roast a turkey. I learned all those lessons gradually living with him for so long. And... Well, I do, I do enjoy cooking. It's the baking that I really enjoy. Of course, I'm a fat boy, so I love eating cakes and cookies and what have you. And it just got to this point where, you know, I'd see him making it on television or reading a cookbook or whatever. I'm like, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not brain surgery. <laughs> you have measurements. It's really, you know. You know, and, and the whole idea of the science behind it fascinated me. The, the precise temperature that you need your pie crust to be before you roll it out or the precise amount of baking powder you need in a cake to make it rise 
properly or how you have to whip the eggs up to make it rise properly. I love all that stuff. And the problem that I have is that technically I can do it all. I mean, especially after the shutdown in the spring, I was very upset. <laughs> Again, I know everybody was upset, <laughs> but me specifically, I'd had a vacation planned. Mm. And of course, it all went out the window mm-hmm. because everything fell apart and the apocalypse broke out. And then I couldn't go to work either. So at that point, I just hold up in my house for a month. And you can ask Hill. He witnessed the whole thing. <laughs> I hold myself up in the house for a month and just baked. Uh, it's so, like, relaxing. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I get irritated when stuff doesn't turn out. But more and more, it's more like, um, you know, why didn't that work out? You know, taking two steps back from it and saying, okay, I know I did it this way. And it worked before, so why didn't it work this way? And looking at new recipes and saying, okay, I see why they're doing it this way, but wouldn't it work better doing it in this way? You know, and learning to bake bread and, you know, make cream puffs and, you know, I really have a killer pie crust now. Those are like hard Um, things. I'm thinking like just cupcakes, but man, you're going hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just, you know, I wanted to know how to do it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I watched it on television and... You know, I, I became obsessed with Julia Child. Oh, yes. In fact, I got the PBS paywall app because okay. they had her entire television series on PBS. So I started watching them. It's just amazing, you know, you know this woman who, you know, has been doing this since before I was born and just showing in very simple steps how to make the stuff that, you know, you can read it in a cookbook and it doesn't make any sense, but you mm-hmm. see somebody actually doing it, and it's like, oh, now I know what she's doing. So, you know, yeah, I love baking. I still do it when I can it, with the store and everything. It, I don't have as much time as I would like to spend on it. But if you're doing... It's, it's like these baking shows, just Great British Baking Show is one of my all-time yes, favorite shows. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I'm like sitting here and they're like, oh, we're going to, we want you to make a cake with four different kinds You're of like, cake I got this. and three frostings and beautifully decorated and you have two and a half hours to do it. I'm like, I couldn't even make the damn cakes in two and a half hours. I don't know how to do it that time. <laughs> Did you watch the most recent episode? No, I haven't. They Let's... have to make ice cream cakes in 95 degree tent. Oh I, I can make an ice cream cake. I can't make an ice cream cake in four and a half hours. No, that's, that's like, that's ridiculous. I don't, yeah, no. I and then on top of that, uh, I have absolutely no artistic ability whatsoever. Uh, I think you do. I really, really don't. I mean, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. So now it's like, now that I can make the frosting and I can make the cakes and I can make the fillings and what have you, now I would like to learn how to make it pretty. Decorating you know, this, aspect. This beautiful cake that's, or patisserie that would be, you know, mm-hmm. not out of place in a bakery window. And that's where I have my problems. And I would love to be able to just take a class and go in and have somebody standing over my shoulder telling me what I'm mm-hmm. doing right or doing wrong. Mm-hmm. But who has time for that? I know. <laughs> So besides baking, you love Broadway musicals. I Yeah, I've always been. It's kind of a gay thing. <laughs> I've always been into the musical thing ever since I was a kid. Um, you know, all those 70s and 80s musicals, movies that came out. I was mm-hmm. always fascinated with them. And it wasn't until I was an adult before I actually ever saw a live show. What was your first live show? Oh, my God. I don't even remember <gasps> anymore. It's been so long. Grease was one of the early ones that okay. I saw over at Straining, and I've seen it like three times live. The King and I was another one of my early that, favorites. I've never seen that, but it's... It's so amazing seeing it staged. 
I mean, the movie with Yul Brenner, of course, and Deborah Carr is what mm-hmm. everybody remembers. And it is a lovely film. But there's just aspects to the musical that just work better as a musical. But, of course, then there's stuff that doesn't work as well as a musical. It's like chess. Chess was uh, originally produced back in the 80s. It wasn't a big hit. And the One Night in Bangkok song. Okay. Certainly you've heard that. Mm-hmm. That's from the show. Oh, wow. And... As a kid, I became obsessed with it. I loved the music. I loved listening to the album. And it was just recently that I actually saw it. Uh, the Toledo Rep oh, wow, did nice. a production of it. And I was so excited because, oh, my God, I'm finally going to see this show live. And let me say at the outset, the Rep did a magnificent job, wonderfully staged. The, the, the actors performed it all great. But the show just wasn't that good. I mean, the actual show itself, it worked much better as an album than it mm-hmm. did as a stage musical. But, um, no, I, I love Broadway. I love Is it the music? Do you think it's the... Again, uh, like comic books, I like it's a juxtaposition thing. Mm. You know, you have the storyline being told in song and dance, and it's a unique thing. And you can do a song, you can do a song and a dance about a subject, and you can get more across to the audience and quicker and hit that emotional high easier than you can with endless talking heads in, in you know a regular romantic movie or what have you. And I think that growing up with music videos, I mean, because I was there when MTV started, and the directors took that musical theater uh, theory and put it into a five-minute pop song or a three-minute pop song and mm-hmm. made these you know stunning short little films. And that, I think, really fed into my love for it as well. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite musical? Okay. Avida is probably my uh. favorite musical. And it's the only musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber that I can stand. Mm. But I really, really love it. I mean, I too want to be, at heart, want to be a filthy, rich, fascist princess in Argentina. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes in Argentina. <laughs> And of course, I've seen that live a couple of times, and mm-hmm. I love the, the Madonna movie. I know, I know, a lot of people can't stand it, but you like what you like. You it's know? so thrilling. Yeah, no, <laughs> I like the Animal of the Opera a lot. And I've seen See, I, I, I saw it live, and it it just left me cold. It, really? Yeah. It, again, this is just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Andrew Lloyd Webber, he has one good tune per per musical, and then beats us over the head with it for three and a half hours. It just feels lazy to me. <laughs> I mean, he certainly knows Sondheim. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, it's funny. I finally saw Hamilton, like a lot of people did on Disney+. Plus. An ex of mine was always trying to get me into Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ugh. It's all, you know, it all had that kind of 90s uh, R&B rap background or DNA, let's say. And that was just not my kind of style of music, Mm -hmm. even at the time. So I was like, eh, not interested, not interested, not interested. So when it came on Disney Plus, it was like, okay, it's free. I got to watch it. Hokey smokes. It blew me away. Putting it in the category of, you know, you can learn something new all the time. I I thought that the rap music was going to, like, turn me off. I've Mm -hmm. always had problems following it. What the hell are they saying? But I found that it clicked that same switch in my brain 
that I get when I watch Shakespeare plays or Sondheim musicals. It's like, okay, you have trouble understanding what's going on for like 10 minutes, and then suddenly your brain starts translating it for you. Yes. And suddenly those rap songs are like a Sondheim musical with all that twisty wordplay and rapid delivery, and I just absolutely adore that musical now. (laughs) We've only seen the first half. I know. We have to get to the second half. What? I know. I'm sorry, I don't want to musical shame you or anything. I'll save that for your dad. Oh, it's just so, it's just a stunning piece of work. And their voices are beautiful, so, yes. And the dancing and the choreography, I love, oh, yes, yes. No question as to why it was a hit after I saw it. Yeah. I'm just so, see, and that's another thing. One aspect to musicals that always has turned me off is it feels very elitist. I mean, you have Broadway or the big theater district in Chicago or Los Angeles or what have you, and most of us are never going to be able to go experience that live, whether it's money or just the fact that those theaters are so small and only so many people can fit in them. I don't understand why there isn't more like what we saw with Hamilton, where the stage musical is filmed and then screened for a larger audience. I think that you'd have a lot more people more engaged with musicals if they did it that way. And I don't mean like the bloated version of Cats that that they put out. I'm not talking about that kind of movie experience because filming for a movie, a musical, is a much different experience than watching a live performance on stage with all the costume changes and all the, the, you know, the technical. Well, you have a background in theater. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I think with dance and ballet, like, it's such an elitist connotation because, you know, white people are patrons of it. Older white people are seeing it. Rich old white people. Yes, exactly. And then these big theaters, and no one can go, and they're all in the bigger cities, so no one can really access it. So having someone film a live performance of it Definitely, you know, more accessible. There's also a stigma attached to it in the sense that, oh, you must have a certain education level to enjoy this dancing. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's dancing. Anybody can enjoy it. Yes. You know, it's, it's, yes, there is a learning curve because it's a different kind of dance than what you're used to seeing. I think more people would like it if they were exposed to it. Again, the same thing with comic books. Mm-hmm. At a younger age, where they get used to the kind of movement that they're seeing you know, on the stage or on the screen or what have you, and they learn at a younger age what that could mean to them or how it relates to them as opposed to throwing it at them when they're in their 20s and 30s. They've already formed an opinion about it without ever seeing a ballet once in their lives. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Ready, hit me. 42. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry, got a little excited there. No, this is good, this is good. Strangest customer request. Strangest (laughs) customer? I work in a comic shop, they're all strange requests. (laughs) Although I did have a woman, this just happened this afternoon. I had this little old lady come in and she pulled out She's like, I was wondering if you could tell me if these are worth anything. That's usually where my strange questions come yeah. from, people wanting to sell stuff. And I'm like, well, I'll try to help you, ma'am. And she pulls out of the bag faux brass pirate ships, like little s- sculpture things. And I'm like, um, I don't know. <laughs> what are they worth? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's really random. <laughs> That keeps you on your toes, I guess. Yeah, but, wow. Are the hardest to find requests? 
Um, we occasionally have people coming in looking for uh, like key books. The problem is if you have somebody coming in saying, well, do you have any Silver Age or Golden Age comics? For your listeners, Silver Age comic books are basically comics that were released between 1959 and 1971, and Golden Age comics would be between 1939 and 1958. Mm. So very old comic books, very expensive comic books. In fact, once you start getting into that realm of collecting... You're out of the realm of comic collecting and you're more into antiquing because these things are just so old and rare. And people come in looking for that stuff occasionally, usually people passing through from out of town. And I'm like, no, I don't have any of those. I sell new comic books. I just look at that like I can't have a thousand dollar comic book sitting up on the wall for, you know, two years before it'll sell. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Easiest and hardest part of what you do. Well, the easiest thing is, of course, just coming in every day and opening up the store and selling stuff to my customers. My customers are wonderful people. They're very loyal. Well, yeah, and that's part of the business is that uh, you can buy this stuff anywhere. Anybody can go on Amazon or one of the big sites like Midtown or DCBS and order the comics and have them delivered right to your front door. Uh, For me, and I guess we can file this under the easiest part of the job, it's customer service. Okay, I enjoy talking to people, um, and oftentimes you can't shut me up. (laughs) I enjoy welcoming people into the store and discussing their hobby with them. Mm -hmm. That's what they come in here for. I mean, we have customers that have a diverse range of political and philosophical and religious views. And all of that kind of goes by the wayside because we all speak the language of comics. Mm -hmm. And no matter what your personal beliefs are, I don't care. You know, you're coming in here to talk about comics, none of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I try to keep that out uh, of my social media presence and my general public forward-facing. Yeah. Uh, so I enjoy, and I find it very easy to, for people to come in and discuss these things with them. And, you know, we have these customers that have been coming in for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And you just, you find yourself slipping into being a part of their life. I mean... You're the part of their life that they look forward to every week. And I try to keep that in mind when people come in. If I'm having a bad day, uh, I try not to spill that out on people because they want to come in and they want to have this positive social interaction that they might not be getting in any other part of their lives. Conversely, when people come in with you know, in really bad moods or whatever or rude or testy or what have you, I always try to remember that it's not me that they're being rude or testy mm-hmm. to. It's something else, and they're coming here as, a, as a, um, a tonic for that. So the most difficult part of my job is just keeping track of everything. That is going to change once I take control of the store in January. But my Steve, I love him to death, but he is a Luddite of the highest order. <laughs> the man has never been on the Internet. The man does not even know how to turn a computer on, much oh, less no. to work it. So all these years... I've had to keep find different ways to keep track of inventory and sales and uh, special orders and what have you with using as little technology as possible because Steve would have no idea how to, oh, yeah. to, to do it. So that is very challenging, and it's going to be an interesting challenge when I'm the one in charge and I can kind of shift everything now to, like, I don't know, a point-of-sale system. 
oh my goodness, you mean a computer's going to keep track of my inventory and I don't have to? I'm not even sure what that world looks like. <laughs> well, I've been doing that for so long. With just oh, like yeah. Old... I mean, it, and that's kind of worked. That's actually, if you don't mind me going off on a tangent here, that's actually worked in my favor because when I first started working in a comic book store, the distribution system was completely computer-free. And we're talking mid to late 80s when I actually learned enough to actually have interaction with the distributors. But I mean, literally, I can remember a time when if I wanted to get a reorder on an issue of the X-Men, you would literally call the warehouse direct. Yeah, I need some of those new X-Men. Do you got any? Hold on. Hey, man, we got any more <laughs> copies of that X-Men? You know, and there's handwritten invoices and all kinds of crazy That's stuff crazy. that you would find crazy now. Yeah, that was the norm. But I was part of the industry as it transitioned from that paper background to computer bulletin boards. Big floppy disks that I would have to like uh, use to collate orders to the small disk until mm -hmm. finally my distributor had a website. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and watching that website kind of evolve into what it is today. And every little step, of course, it, it made it a little easier, but it also added you know new challenges on keeping track of everything. But that's the most difficult thing, and I still drop the ball all the time. I mean... When you're dealing with 10 covers on a new issue of Nightwing and everybody wants a different cover, trying to keep you know, track of all that on pen and paper mm -hmm. or even on a, you know, like a simple spreadsheet or computer file, it, it, some days I just want to tear my hair out. Who or what inspires you? Hillman inspires me. <laughs> Since he's standing here, I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Like it? <laughs> well, no, I'm serious. It's yeah, like I know that every weekend I have look forward to Hillman being around and spending as much time together as we can. Mm -hmm. So, especially as stressful as things have been over the last six months, um, I can always look forward to that. And it's whenever I start to get too tired or get sick of dealing with paperwork or mm -hmm. trying to get that last. Uh, tax exemption form to the distributor before they'll open an account. All I have to do is think, okay, I've got Hill coming over on Friday. That's all I have to get to mm -hmm. is Friday and everything will be okay again. Have you gotten him into comics at all? Actually, Hillman, he Hillman read comics when he was a kid. Okay. You weren't that into him in the years before we, we met. But yes, I've got him reading. I'll bring comic books <laughs> home to him to read so that I can get kind of a civilian take on them. Nice. Okay. I mean, he's not, like, so deep into it that he's, well, like I was talking about earlier, I feel like I'm so deep into the comic book sometimes that I can't see the forest for the trees. I'm just too focused on, you know, micro-focused on yep. this particular aspect. But someone like Hill, I can give him a new comic book and say, okay, what do you think? And it gives me an idea of what kind of audience that I can look forward to to have for having that particular subject matter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Hill's an inspiration. Okay, this is my dad's question. <laughs> Favorite Star Trek captain? Oh, Picard. Yeah. Picard, every, every day of the week and twice on Sundays. <laughs> twice on Sundays. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, um, Deep Space Nine, Next Generation used to be my favorite Star Trek show. But 
when a couple of years ago I rewatched a big swath of Deep Space Nine, and I realized, no, Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek show. Just the it it was like the perfect mix between what we consider modern television storytelling and classic television storytelling. I mean, it was episodic, but you still had that kind of continuing story that would start at the beginning of the season and then end Mm -hmm. at the end of the season. And I love that. I love being able to follow and allow them to unpack a story and characters for multiple episodes. Again, it's an echo of the comic book experience, really. But no, Picard is still my favorite captain. Are you watching the new Picard? Oh, my God, yes. I haven't watched it yet. I have. I I know you haven't. (laughs) I'm so behind. And and believe me, I castigate your father all the time for it. I totally Picard shame him because (laughs) I know he would love it. It's like it took everything that I loved about Next Generation and, again, reworked the material and told the story in a more modern, updated way. And it was it was just absolutely terrific. And you need to finish watching Discovery, too. Yeah, and, and, and Hamilton. It's fine. And Hamilton. Gotta get through it. <laughs> Did you see that Cats movie, though? No, I didn't. Don't. Okay, good. Avoid it. Oh my goodness! I dragged Hill to that, and I feel—I still feel somewhat guilty about <laughs> Shakes it. Shakes his head. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was Dang. so bad. You see—you see a lot of movies all the time and TV shows. Yeah, less honestly, less than I used to, because for many, 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 many years, I worked at a variety of video stores. Um, believe it or not, it's hard to make a living. <laughs> just being head schmuck at a comic store. Yeah. <laughs> so I often had part-time jobs at video stores, and when I worked there, it was kind of like the comic book thing. Well, I have to watch all these movies so that I can, in mm-hmm. turn, when people ask me, are they any good, I can lie to them and tell them a little bit about it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, during those those times, I was very like into like filmmakers like David Lynch. Oh, oh yes. you're a Twin Peaks fan, oh, too. Yes, I am. Oh, my God, it's so great. Yes. Um, that ending, but, the new season. Do you want to know a funny story about that? So, you remember how they put the last two episodes out the same week? Yes. For the season three of Twin Peaks? I turned it on to watch it, Did and I watch- accidentally watched the last episode no. before the penultimate episode. Oh, gosh. But you know what? It didn't really make that big of a difference. Yeah. <laughs> It takes time. <laughs> well, it's also, you know, you have David Lynch. Everything's happening out of sequence anyway. Yeah, so, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I, but That's I so absolutely I adored that show. But most people weren't into the kind of um, movies that I was watching at the time. I, very much smaller films. I grew up loving exploitation films, okay. particularly uh, late 60s, early 70s exploitation films. So... Watching all those great Z horror films from the 80s and the kind of um, the rougher, more dark horror films that would start popping up in the 90s. That was really my thing. But no, I've watched quite a bit of stuff. Also, I became, I still kind of am, obsessed with pre-code or pre-ratings films. What does that mean? Stuff that came out before the MPA system of rated R, rated PG. Oh, okay. Uh, when they were going more by the Hayes Code, which would have been 40s, 50s, early 60s. I really admire those films. Uh, again, it's kind of a gay culture thing because, mm-hmm. you know, 
Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford. I love that, the, the women's pictures. Yes. You know, I just thought that they were fascinating. But also because the filmmakers had to work a lot harder back then to get certain concepts through to the audience because there was things they could not show and they couldn't say. And I, you know, you, you go back and watch these films from the 40s and 50s and in a lot of ways, they're no different from the, the stories that they're telling now in movies. But now you can just show so much and vomit out so much di different kinds of dialogue that you couldn't back then. So seeing um, A Streetcar Named Desire or Suddenly Last Summer, Tennessee, mm -hmm. you know, any Tennessee Williams yes. production, you know, there was a, a, a writer who had some very intense things to say about a lot of different portions of the society that he grew up in, but he had to talk about it in code. And I like watching those movies in code. I like watching uh, the classic actors uh, work with that material. In fact, if you've never seen, you know, any, any, watch any Betty Davis movie from the mm -hmm. 40s and, and you'll, you'll see what I mean immediately. I heard you like Taylor Swift. You're a Swifty. Oh my God. So I told you that I had my vacation fall through earlier this mm -hmm. year. Hillman because he's the most wonderful boyfriend in the world, got me tickets to see Taylor <gasps> Swift down in Atlanta. Oh, my gosh. We had the whole trip planned. And, of course, as soon as this COVID mess started and the apocalypse broke out, <laughs> it was one of the first things canceled. I was so upset. That's so sad. I adore Taylor Swift. And what's funny is I've had people try to get me into Taylor Swift for years. And I'm not a country guy, generally speaking. I was like, eh, not interested, mm -hmm. not interested. And then... Um, uh, what's his name? Ryan something or other did a the the dirtbag rock star did a remake of Taylor Swift's 1989 record. It's kind of like a, this acoustic rock record, and I listened to that, and I really like these songs. So then I listened to her version of it, and I was like, oh, it's too pop for me. But then after I listened to it two or three times, I was completely seduced by it. Yep. And then. Um, Every record that's come out since, I've liked a little bit more than the one before What's it. What's your so. favorite song? My favorite Taylor Swift song yes. ever, ever, ever? Ever, ever. Or which one that you can listen to over and over again? Lover. <gasps> that's it's, a good one. It's Hill and I's song. Oh. So that's that's my favorite song. That's a good one. Oh, there's so but many. But the one, her best kiss-off song is, uh, what's the name of it? Trouble. Oh, I knew yep. you were trouble. Yep. That's my favorite Taylor Swift kiss off song. Yep, yep. Actually, I think it's my favorite video of hers, too. She's got some good videos. Oh, I, I do like her. Did you like the new record? Yes, I like Cardigan. I, mean, I don't know all of it. I'm very, know her only mainly popular ones. My favorite song on the new record is the duet that she did. With, um, is that Bon Iver? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I love that song. <laughs> I listen to it over and over and over. I like how she switches up her direction with each album. Yeah, I, I actually prefer it because um, Reputation, I liked the record, but I didn't love it because I tend to prefer it when she's using, like, real instrumentation. Okay. I like her doing the guitar, bass, drum yep. type music. And once I got into her and went back into her country catalog, I just, I think that the songs that she constructs sound better with the piano guitar sound mm -hmm. rather than the synthesizer or, you know... Electric yep. gun beat or what have you. A little more authentic in that. Wow. Okay. Anything else you want to share? I don't know. Haven't I shared everything? I know. I have a lot of <laughs> random questions on my end. I just was like, there's so much, you know. So 
Monarch Comics is on, I wrote this down, Colonial Village Shopping Center. Yes, at 4400 Heather Downs. Yes. Corner of Heather Downs and Key Street. Perfect. And what are your store hours? Uh, we're open on Monday through Saturday, 11 to 7, and Sundays, 1230 to 5. Or, I'm sorry, 12 to 530. Jesus, I get my own store hours wrong. <laughs> now, let me... Add on to that, that once I take over on January 1st, we are going to be closed on Mondays. So okay. it'll be Tuesdays through Saturday, 11 to 7, and then 12 to 5.30 on Sunday. And do you get your new comics every Wednesday? Uh, every Wednesday is the release date release for the new day. comics. Okay. You know, it's a funny little story. Uh, DC, they made a lot of distribution and release date changes during this whole COVID nightmare. Uh, one of which is technically DC Comics are on sale on Tuesdays as opposed to Wednesdays. DC made this move at a corporate level because they wanted all their releases to come out on the same day. Mm-hmm. And of course, Tuesday is the traditional day that books and DVDs and CDs come out. So they switched their comics to that. I can't do that though, because I can't just put DC Comics out for sale brand new without having everything else. To go with it. So for us, yes, Wednesday morning is our release date. I usually have the DC Comics by Friday. The, I mean, the previous Friday. Like, mm-hmm. you see those three boxes there. That's oh, wow. the DC Comics for next week. Everything else I don't get until Tuesday morning. Okay. So uh, does Monarchs have a Facebook, right? Yep, Facebook. And we also website. have a website, monarchcomics.net. I'll admit I don't. I haven't really done a whole lot with the website because I haven't been in a position yet where I can say have a store online. But most of the business I do through Facebook just because I like the platform. I know I know it's very fashionable right now to bash Facebook, but I love the way, and maybe it's just me being 50 years old, but I love the way I can go on Facebook and I can, with a little bit of patience and work, I can shape my timeline to show me what I want to see as opposed to you know, all this stuff crashing in. And I find that it's really easy to target advertising through Facebook as well. They've, they've put up a system that's actually fairly basic and easy for a computer illiterate like me to use. So I love Facebook. I love being able to put funny memes out for my customers <laughs> or, you know, if I, if I get a book in that I have to sell and I have to push it right now, I can put the picture <laughs> out. I can talk about it. You know, every week I try to do like a little bloggy thing, you know, to reach out and let people know what's going on behind the scenes or what kind of sales we have coming up or just to tell them about some funny story that, you know, I'm dealing with in my own life. <laughs> Come check out Ed and Steve at Monarchs. It's a great store. It's so nicely laid out. We are pretty awesome. You, they are. You guys are great. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this for me. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. It. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And to all who are listening and check back for our next episode next month. Yay! Peace out.